0: All right. Hi, everyone. I'm Nicole Peterson. and I'd like to thank you all for joining us for SMA Stratcom Academic Alliance Speaker Session entitled Deterrence and Defense Strategy, Old Lessons and New Contexts." I'd also like to thank today's speaker Dr. Carter Malkazian for taking the time to present today. So just a few quick housekeeping items before we begin. So we'll be having a Q&A session at the conclusion of today's brief. So during the presentation or during the Q&A, go ahead and, pre- and submit your questions through ZoomGov's chat function. It's a chat icon at the bottom of your screen. Also go ahead and submit all of your questions today to Ms. Mariah Yeager. Her name should be listed as questions-mariah Yeager. And questions that aren't submitted to Mariah specifically may not be addressed, so go ahead and make sure to send those questions to Mariah. Also note that your name is going to appear in the chat before your question, and it'll be read out loud before we address that question. If you prefer for your name to not be recorded and on the record, go ahead and rename yourself by going to participants at the bottom bar of your screen then more next to your name, and finally, rename. So I'm now going to introduce today's speaker before I turn the floor over to him. Dr. Carter Malkazian was the Special Assistant for Strategy to the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Joseph Dunford, from 2015 to 2019. He has extensive experience working in conflict zones and has published several books. He was also involved in the National Military Strategy Analysis Beyond or behind the nuclear posture review, counter ISIS strategy, war planning, and management of the 2017 to 2018 North Korea crisis, and strategy during a series of crises with Russia and Syria while he was, um, at, while he was working for uh, Joseph Dunford. Uh, Dr. Malkazian currently works at the Center for Naval Analyses, or CNA, where he's conducted studies on airstrike campaigns, COVID-19, defense strategy, and force design. So, Dr. Malkasian, I'll turn the floor over to you now, and I will stop sharing my screen.
1: Hey Nicole, thank you for the, the great introduction. It's it's an honor to be here and to be, be speaking to everyone again. On, and I, I really appreciate the the attention people have uh, to this and, and their in their busy schedules. On, um, so yes, what I wanted to talk to uh, you all about today, on is uh, defense strategy. On. And I'm going to share my screen right now so that you can uh, see the presentation on you know, defense, deterrence and defense strategy. You know, old lessons and new and new contexts. And what this discussion and this brief really comes from is my experience over a, a variety of years uh, working in the government, especially working as uh, General Dunford's um, senior advisor during that time period that Nicole mentioned. And one of the things I experienced during that and in, in previous times working in government is that I often served as kind of an interpreter, as someone who is translating um, government or translating academic concepts and theoretical ideas for policymakers. And I especially started to find this relevant in discussing defense strategies. It was being created in the lens I saw it through in 2015 to 2019 and discussing deterrence. I've continued to see a lot of these academic concepts useful in our current discussions about defense strategy and as a new NDS is is drafted. So earlier this year, I thought it might be somewhat useful if I tried to capture some of these academic concepts and discuss the ones that i found to be most useful when we think about on um, these big strategic con- concepts and, and topics and so that's what i wanted to to talk to you about today is to, to go through some of these ideas it comes from a paper that i wrote um, that paper went out to a variety of people and a variety of commands and 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 to the joint staff and i got some some very good feedback on, on that on um, so for uh the the kind of concepts that I want to go over with you on um, today. Uh, I want to go over some concepts regarding, and there's going to be five different concepts I want to go over. First, I want to go over some concepts regarding deterrence and regarding how resolve and the balance of interest plays within that. I then want to talk about tripwires and brinksmanship, which are kind of ways of demonstrating one's resolve or one's commitment to dealing with something. I wanna talk about the issue of brinkmanship in wartime, which is sometimes known as rocking the boat. I wanna talk about different options that can be applied to conducting cost imposition. Cost imposition, of course, being a way that we often think about um, conducting war for day or something we think is valuable. And finally, I wanna talk about costly signals. So the main implication of what I'm trying to talk about today is that defense strategy might be able to focus a little bit less on winning and a little bit less on military modernization and a little more on deterrence and signaling. And such an approach might, af- uh, might be more affordable than how we often look at, look at these things. Now, there's also some shortcomings for the concepts I want to talk about today. Now, they're rooted in the Cold War. They're rooted in when, we, when there are two different superpowers facing each other. And what that means is we really need some new studies, some new academic studies, to understand how multipolarity affects deterrence, and also how new technology could um, could affect deterrence. So those are some of the things that I I wanna talk about today. Um, First, maybe we just go over some basics about uh, the current defense strategy, which I think many of you know, but I think it's important to set the stage for for what I wanna talk about in a moment. so as we know, the Biden administration is, is revising and updating the U.S. defense strategy. The U.S. defense strategy since 2018 is focused on the idea of great power competition. Um, and that's being that the United States is going to really have to focus its efforts on confronting or deterring and defeating uh, China, Russia, and other states that have nuclear weapons or are going to have nuclear weapons in, in, in the near future, perhaps. Now that term great power competition, of course, today is being um, repackaged as strategic competition, but the general idea of what the United States is going to need to do remains, uh, very much the same. Um, and as we've looked at defense strategy in the, in the discourse that's existed since 2017, 2018, it has been very much based on linking the effective use of force to deterrence. And that often gets stated in the, in the, in, in the term of defense, um, by by denial and in the 2018 defense strategy it states the surest way to prevent war is to be prepared um, to win one so this is really a defining concept of how defense strategy has been looked at and i believe it to largely be there today this has been the idea has been expanded a little bit lately with the idea of integrated deterrence that goes across different domains and different functions and with some discussion of the idea of not just deterrence by denial, but deterrence by punishment. Nevertheless, the importance of the use of force and the effective use of force leading to deterrence, I think that remains a really critical point uh, when we talk about defense strategy today. And all of this leads, furthermore, to the idea that we need to have greater defense spending and we need to have greater innovation. The 2018 defense strategy shoots very high for what the military needs to be able to do saying our aim is a joint force that possesses decisive advantages for any likely conflict while remaining proficient across uh, the spectrum of conflict. So that's a, a little bit of background there. So let's talk a little bit about the academic theories in general before we get to them. So the, th- the concepts I'm going to go through today, they come from the field of game theory. Game theory is also known as, uh, can be called um, formal modeling. Some it's, it can be formal modeling. It's sometimes connected to rational choice. Um, And there's some various other names that are used for it um, from time to time. But the basic things that we need to to understand it here is that it involves formal mathematical models. And, And in those models, it will try to examine the interaction between two or more different actors. It will do that by showing the different actors' courses of actions. It will try to capture the payoffs that they have and the costs they have for enacting any kind of course of action. And the analysis is meant to provide um, uh, equilibrium results that show what the best courses of action are um, for any given situation. It's, uh, in t- these days, it can also be modeled with incomplete information, meaning that one actor will not know the payoffs or the costs of another actor. Which that better resembles the normal the the normal situation in life now for many of us i think game theory is familiar in terms of two by two state uh, two by two games on um, that that we, you may have seen in in, in college or in, in getting a master's degree and th- those have colorful names like prisoner's dilemma or stag hunt on and the the field kind of has a penchant for for metaphorical names my favorite being uh, beer versus quiche um but These games kind of belie the analytical complexity um, that goes behind um, game theory. Several Nobel laureates have come out of the game theory field, and there's been a variety of adaptations um, for it to better address uh, the situation today. So game theory is far beyond now two by two um, games. What are the advantages of it? So uh, the advantages of game theory is, for one thing, it's transparent. One can look at it, can understand, of why one side made the decisions it did. You can look at the formulas and understand what the assumptions are that went into it. The terms are precisely um, defined, things are accounted for. It doesn't hide assumptions um, as qualitative thinking often does. So that's that's a strength of it. And one of the, the best strengths of it is that it helps us structure our thinking when we don't have a lot of empirical evidence about what may be happening. And that really, that really falls directly to when we're talking about nuclear warfare something that we don't have much empirical evidence thankfully at all we also though don't have much empirical evidence right now about what happens when two great powers or two nuclear powers fight even on the conventional level there isn't a lot that exists there so it's very nat- game theory can be very very natural and very useful for thinking about um, things that we don't quite fully understand or haven't been able to see to see yet so what I'd like to do now is, having gone, gone over some of those um, theoretical elements there, is I'd like to now shift to talk to some of the, about the concepts that I mentioned here. Um, and so these concepts are going to be beyond the base. These are based on um, three highly regarded scholars. I'm going to go through Thomas Schelling's work, Robert Powell's work, and a little bit of Jim Firon's work. Um, and... So we want to go through those. We are going to go through one by one. Then when we get to the end, I'm going to talk a little bit about what are some things that are lacking, what's some new analysis that might need to be done, because I really think that that's an important aspect of how we look at um, defense strategy today. So talking about uh, Thomas Schelling, Nobel laureate, one of the most respected, uh, respected people in the field of game theory and in the field of international relations. And he came to develop and, and crystallize um, what, how deterrence should should be conducted? Thomas Schelling is a little bit of a controversial character. Um, a lot of his ideas caused him to um, uh, take some abuse in the 1960s and and be seen as a little bit too theoretical, too mathematical. Some say he's who's parodied in in, uh, in Doctor Strangelove. Um, but regardless, the man won a Nobel Prize, um, and for many uh, for many political scientists. Um, uh, showing is to, to them as Clausewitz is to the U.S. military. So he's not someone who can be lightly ignored. So one of his main points here is that when nuclear powers are concerned, military victory in the traditional sense is no longer possible. It's not possible because the two powers have recourse to nuclear weapons. And there really isn't a good way to remove those nuclear weapons um, without using a large number of them. So traditional military victory doesn't bring up um, so much. The point that follows from this is that what determines the outcome of wars between great powers is a willingness to accept harm um, or risk or the disastrous use of nuclear weapons. And this has sometimes been referred to as resolve. Now, here I don't want to use the word resolve too much, because resolve these days has all all kinds of baggage attached to it. Really, a good way to think about what Schelling is talking about is the balance of interests. Which side cares more about what is at stake in the conflict? Stakes matter here. Interests are are what matter here and is a major factor in determining what resolve is. That's a little bit simplistic. Um, Resolve has some other characteristics, too, like risk acceptance that plays into it. But I think for the purposes of our discussions here, balance of interests is the most important thing. Um, for us to talk about. And so he says, issues are decided not by who can bring the most force to bear in a locality or a particular uh, issue, but by who is eventually willing um, to bring more forces to bear or able to make it appear that more are forthcoming. So to use a real world example, one that many of you are probably familiar with. If in the Cold War, the Soviet Union had invaded Western Europe, the Soviet Union, um, it, uh, all folks think that they could have probably overrun the conventional forces of NATO and Western Europe pretty quickly. But that, that wouldn't have decided the issue. The question would have then come up is, what was the United States going to do next? Is the United States going to use nuclear weapons or not? And we don't really know what the answer to that would have been. But we do know the critical question was not, who has more tanks in Western Europe? critical question is, does the United States have the willpower to use nuclear weapons or not? Now, the same is true of Great Power War today. Um, Taiwan and the United States might repel a Chinese invasion um, of Taiwan, but that would not be the end of the matter. China is said to highly value Taiwan, and so it might um, want to escalate further over this interest that it has our military victory would be academic. And this logic is apparent in the very famous exchange uh, between Chinese Lieutenant General Zhuang Guangkai to Assistant Secretary of Defense Chaz Freeman during the 1996 Taiwan crisis, a time at which the United States was vastly military superior to China. And what that general said to Assistant Secretary Freeman was Americans care more about Los Angeles than they do about Taiwan. In other words, the balance of interests favors China. All right, so if it's balance of interest that matters, how can force be used? And Schelling really helped us understand that to a greater extent. Um, so there's two ways that I think I want to talk about today about how he talked about how military force can be used and, and play upon the balance of interests um, in a competition between, uh, or a conflict between new great powers. The first one I want to talk about is a triple wire. Some of you are probably familiar with the idea of a tripwire. Tripwire is a small number or even a large number of forces are put in a place where they are in the path of an advance um, by the adversary, such that the adversary has no choice if it wants to capture something but to cross that tripwire and attack um, the forces of of the defender or attack the forces of the United States in, in, in the examples that we'll use. By doing this... Uh, the people who, whoever lays the tripwire, locks themselves into a fight. They make it that they'll be forced to have some kind of confrontation. And when that confrontation occurs, it's not clear what exactly is going to happen. There'll be domestic pressure to react, presumably to some extent, or commanders on the field may do something accidental that causes, that causes the conflict to, to escalate. Schelling writes, just what would happen is a matter of prediction or guess. Military resistance tends to develop a momentum of its own. It is dynamic and uncertain. What we threaten is a process that may quickly get out of hand. Now, the most famous tripwire is the U.S. garrison in West Berlin during the Cold War, a small garrison that never could have um, stood against a a Soviet assault, West Berlin at this time, of course, being completely surrounded by the rest of East Germany. But that wasn't the point. The point was that overrunning those forces um, would create a war, would create a conflict, that the United States would be much more likely, much more committed to being involved in if it did be rather compared to if it didn't have those forces there um at whatsoever now the same kind of logic um applies today when we think about the battalions that are in the baltics um, far away not able to defend anything effectively but would serve as a serve as a tripwire on um, so that's one way to think about it another way to think about the use of force is brinkmanship which is a very famous way of uh, applying uh, applying risk using forces to apply risk to create coercion upon an adversary and Schelling says about this it is a competition in risk-taking it involves setting afoot an activity that may get out of hand initiating a process that carries some risk of unintended disaster so in brinkmanship um, the the actor that is trying to coerce the other doesn't actually decide that it's going to go to full-scale war and certainly doesn't decide that it doesn't doesn't on its own use nuclear weapons, it takes steps that might accidentally cause that to occur. Hence, steps towards the brink, on and not knowing if maybe as it steps towards the brink that the actor may fall over, dragging the other actor with it. Um, so it's initiating a lesser act that could conceivab- conceivably spin out of control. Examples might be military maneuvers close to a border missile tests over an adversary's territory, border skirmishes, or something like generation of, uh, generation of nuclear forces. Now, in a traditional idea of, of, a, of a competition and brinkmanship, both sides take steps. Both sides do one of these actions until one of them doesn't have any more willingness to go forward and concedes to whatever's at stake. And that would be, that would be the, the, the risk that person has now been coerced by the risk of things going out of control by the risk of going over the brink and facing complete annihilation again the initiator is exploiting awareness that accidents happen that communications go awry that commanders on the, in the field sometimes don't do what they're told to do um, by higher headquarters and fear causes humans to act unwisely so if you want to think about brinksmanship you know the famous example is the cuban missile crisis where instead of directly invading cuba on Kennedy issued ultimatums, Dren generated forces, initiated a blockade, forced Soviet submarines to to surface, flew over reconnaissance flights, small actions that were nevertheless upping the risk up to a point where Khrushchev didn't want any more risk and was willing to withdraw those forces. We can also think of this, though, in Kim Jong Un's recent behavior, in 2017 and 2018, when he's shooting off ballistic missiles, making fiery threats, and he appears to be someone who is um, not in, in, in not making wise decisions. That applies some amount of pressure, but all those missiles that we're firing up, every one of the missiles that's fired, one asks, well, could that hit somewhere else? What if parts of it fall on Japan? What if it's targeting Pearl Harbor? So every time he fires one up, it keeps, creates a risk that the United States or Japan may react, and we may get tumbling towards war. It's a form of brinksmanship, even though I think for him it probably wasn't the most effective form. So what is what, what kind of implications does Shelling's work have for defense strategy today? Well, first of all, the defense of places like Taiwan or the Baltics, that may be less relevant on to deterrence and the balance of interest. Second, tripwires may be an affordable way. Way on to reinforce deterrence. Third, great power war itself may be brinkmanship, and it may be that more than it is a contest of military capabilities. And that's what I'd like to turn to to talk a little bit about now. I'd like to talk now about brinkmanship in wartime, and the theorist to talk about this best is Robert Powell on. And what he did is he looked at, if a war breaks out, what kind of, and uh, both sides are trying to win the conventional military battle, how does brinkmanship play in that? How do things escalate? And this is often used as the, by the, the analogy that Schelling developed called rocking the boat. Two guys are in a boat, uh, they decide to fight each other, but the, that battle is not determined by who's the strongest. Um, because if the boat turns, flips, if the boat gets unsteady, they can flip, they both fall in the water. That's the the analogy. Um, So what Powell did is he created a a particular game, and what that game um, said was that first um, a challenger could could use force, um, normal military conventional force, to take something, to try to take something. But then the defender has an option the defender can decide if it would now like to escalate or take some steps toward escalation or maybe towards nuclear use. And so he was trying to see as that, that kind of exchange happens, how does it play out? How is military force important? How is, how is resolve important? Well, a lot of the results are, are fairly intuitive on. So as might be ex- expected, if the, the more the balance of interest favors the defender, the less power the challenger wants to, to to bring. Now, conversely, if the conventional military superiority to defeat or repel a challenger's military, conversely, if the defender has a great deal of, of 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 military force, on that ability may not matter that much if the challenger has high resolve. Now, also the thing, another thing you found that was interesting, if both sides have high resolve, care about the interest a lot. Well, that creates the situation that's most likely to be disastrous because both sides could um, be inclined to step closer and closer to the brink, and there could be a chance of of things falling apart. Now, what about, though, what about a defender that is both weak in military power and weak in the balance of interests, doesn't care a lot about what's at stake? Is that player doomed to have to surrender to the aggressor. And what Powell shows is, well, that's not actually the case because of the nature of the environment today with, um, with, with the possible nuclear uh, um, escalation, a weak, irresolute defender can adopt certain postures, certain doctrines, certain command and control arrangements such that escalation will occur automatically and it can set those kind of postures and doctrines ahead of actually being in a crisis. So it does it at a time at which there's low risk, but once those are set, the defender doesn't have much control over what's going to happen. So if the challenger violates, if the challenger attacks, it will face a very high level of risk that may be beyond what it's willing to do. That can be a form of deterrence. So for an, what's an example of this? Let's go back to Kim Jong-un. Kim Jong-un, who is thought of as not having everything perfectly in order, who whenever there's a crisis, there's questions of how much is he in control of things, questions of does he control all his nuclear weapons, what are his generals doing, what are people on the ground doing, what is their reaction going to be. So Kim Jong-un, um, without a doubt, has weaker military capability than the United States. Um, It's quite debatable if the stakes in such a conflict, if if his stake in it is is that much greater than than South Korea's or or, or not. But he's able to use certain postures, certain doctrines, certain command and control arrangements to deter an attack. So let's take this a little bit further um, with an example from um, today on the Taiwan conflict. What I've done here on this graph, and don't worry, I will use no math unless I uh, embarrass myself too much, on um, this graph here is it takes one of Powell's graphs, and I've made it to use it as an example, simplified and made it an example of what we could see in the case of something like Taiwan, or to use this model and make us understand that better. If you look at the y-axis there, that's the risk of all that nuclear war, low being at the bottom, high being at the top. X-axis is the probability of PRC prevailing in a conflict uh, with with the United States. And uh, we're saying that this is uh, theoretically over over Taiwan. That black line that goes up, that is the maximum risk of nuclear war at any point. And if you look at the X-axis, I've kind of divided out the probability of PRC military victory being based on what kind of things that they are doing. So if they conduct an amphibious assault, if you look up that dotted line where it intersects the black line, you can see it has, well, some risk of, of nuclear escalation, but not a lot. Versus if it was to use nuclear use itself, well, all out nuclear war risk goes up very, very high. The red line that's there, that's China's resolve, how much it is, what what it sees as a balance of interest to be, how much risk it is willing to bear of nuclear disaster. The blue line is U.S. resolve, how much risk the United States is willing to bear of of nuclear disaster. So to use Powell's model a little bit, um, let's say if the PRC decided to conduct an an amphibious assault, um, that bears a certain level of, 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 of nuclear risk, but that nuclear risk is far beneath what China's resolve is, so it might be willing to do that. And the United States has resolved is less than this. So the United States in this situation would be in a would not be in a good in, in a good place. But let's say that PRC is unable, that, that probability of PRC victory isn't enough. Um, they want a higher probability or they're simply unable to do it at that level. So let's say they have to do something wider, um, what we read about in multiple newspaper articles about what they would do with large-scale missile strikes and sinking U.S. carriers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. In that case, they would have a greater probability of military victory, but they would also have a greater case of all-out nuclear war. And that could very well exceed their resolve, even though they care about the situation more than the United States. So I think this is how looking at, at, at this particular model can be useful for us thinking about dynamics today. Um, Now, you could also say that what you've laid out here is highly escalatory, Carter, and highly, highly dangerous. And what you might even lay out is, gee, this looks like another situation that involved an island close to a great power. This looks a lot like the Cuban Missile Crisis, where Khrushchev rashly put nuclear weapons in um in cuba and as a means to threaten the united states and it didn't go well to Khrushchev. and i guess i'd have two answers to that question the first thing i would say is that well in the cuban missile crisis khrushchev did have to withdraw his nuclear weapons but he did effectively deter a u.s invasion of cuba the second thing i would say though is i recognize the criticism that this is too risky but if this is too risky the answer is not to develop more US military forces and try to defend far, far forward. The answer is to adjust your interests, because the balance of interests are not in our are not in our favor if we think that. Um, and then we should scale back um, what our sites are. Um, all right, so I'm at 132. And what I'm going to do here is I'm going to skip the section on cost and position, unless um, we don't have time to questions or lest I put everyone to sleep. Um, so let's talk, uh, let's move a little bit and talk about costly signals. Costly signals is what James Fearon um, explored. I mean, um, uh, Schelling explored it first. James Fearon, political scientist at, uh, at, at Stanford, um, who is actually um, in the Defense Department now as an advisor to the administration. Um, he explored this in his doctoral dissertation. So how does a state demonstrate or signal its commitment? So, the easy way to do something is to threaten to do something. The problem with that is talk is cheap. Words don't really signal any kind of, of commitment, and someone can can uh, an adversary can easily believe that we're we're bluffing so instead of doing that, the defender can take an action, do an action that entails a cost, some kind of cost to it that cost on is meant to show greater commitment to the adversary, and that is what's known as a costly signal. So what, what could be defined as a costly signal? Well, theoretically, a large number of things could be. Could be economic, could be political, um, could be military. Fearon stresses that a main way is political. It's called an audience cost. And what an audience cost involves is that a leader says something or does something, knowing if they don't carry through on it that there'll be political backlash within its own country. So audience costs get a large amount of large amount of popularity there. Um, but there's other things that are there too that I think are important for noting, like for, for just for policy making purposes. So a, a costly signal that can be very easy to think about is a mutual defense treaty. A mutual defense treaty takes a lot of effort to set up. It involves legal obligations on both sides. For us, it requires congressional approval it's quite clear that there's some serious work that has to be done to go into a mutual defense treaty. So that is a useful, costly signal. Another example might be a military deployment that's expensive. So like CENTCOM's uh, deployment of, uh, to deter Iran, the recent deployments to the Gulf at the, during the Trump administration, that was expensive. Adversaries would see that that was happening. And so that can be taken as a costly signal. Another, one, another type of costly signal is a little bit different. If you remember the, uh, the 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 crisis in India um, with the, the terrorist attack in Kashmir and the strikes against Balakot by the Indian Air Force within uh, in, into Pakistan, you might remember there was a shootdown of an F-16. That whole event, though, was a way of India sending a costly signal, sending a signal first of all that they were willing to bear risk by attacking Pakistan, but then they, that they were willing to take the damage of losing aircraft on, um, I, sh- I wrote F-16 shoot, down. just to be specific there, I believe it was a MiG-21 shoot down, shot down by an F-16, less than any of you think I, I, I missed a beat there. Um, so those are another form of costly signals. Now what Firon found is that in equilibria, on a costly signal, a, a leader that undertakes a costly signal is rarely bluffing. Um, that They rarely decide that they're going to incur costs and then fail to respond if they are challenged. Now, I understand that the real world is more complicated than that, and states may behave illogically, or they may be, they try to bluff when it's not in their best interest, but I don't think that takes away from the, this finding and how important it is for us to be thinking about defense strategy. Um, so like today, when we think about interests that we care about, it may be necessary um, to, uh, to take on uh, costly signals or accept greater risk in order to clearly um, show commitment uh, to to an adversary. So, you know, examples of this might be more confrontational military deployments against China or in the South China Sea or against Russia in the Black Sea and the Mediterranean. Um, maybe it means matching harassment that the Chinese and Russians do of our aircraft and ships against their ships. Maybe it means something a little bit more economic and political, um, like increasing investment in democracies that we care about, like the Philippines. Um, Maybe it means retaliation in kind for Russian or or Chinese cyber attacks. We also may want to refrain from withdrawal of military forces from places that are of clear strategic interest. I'm not saying don't withdraw from Afghanistan. That's a separate talk, a separate separate discussion. But when uh, we withdraw from areas of interest, that is not a costly signal. It's the opposite of a costly signal. That's that we really didn't care about it, and we were trying to save money by getting out on And even when we withdraw from areas of lesser interest, we still wanna think about, are there some costly signals we wanna send on the way out to make it clear that we're still willing to fight over other more important interests? Costly signals should also come to mind when we think about how we might fight a war. A war itself can be a costly signal. The Korean War in many ways was a decision by Truman on uh, to send a signal to Russia and all the communists that the United States would not stand aside if they advanced against Taiwan, if they advanced against Japan. It had much as much to do with the wider East Asia as it has it had to do with Korea. And just going one step further, if a war is to be lost, it may be better that the United States loses the war after suffering costs um, than suffering no costs at all the best thing of course if one's going to lose is that we suffer few costs and the adversary suffers a lot of costs but if that's not possible simply walking away may do the opposite for our future deterrence may may not may be counterproductive for future deterrence. okay so we are moving now to the end rapidly I apologize for going a little bit too long so one of the things I was trying to get to take to use as takeaways here on So these concepts that I've been talking about, they point to a strategy that would center deterrence more on a balance of interests and a balance of military strength. They would look to make aggression excessively risky for an adversary. They would send costly signals that the United States is committed to its interest, but it would would also step back from areas that fall out of U S interests and are too risky to contend on. And these concepts, they, question the idea of victory through conventional means or using military force as the sole element of deterrence. They don't call for preparing to win a war in order to deter. Um, And rather than having a large military massive modernization, they consider different ways to employ force. All right, last slide, the one that I'm probably going to end up spending too little time on. All of the studies I've just talked about that come out of the, the, the Cold War or shortly after the Cold War. And they're affected by uh, analysis that was based on there being two superpowers. There are very few studies today are based on there being multiple different powers that are in conflict with each other. And we need to be sensitive that this could change our understanding of deterrence. It can make deterrence operate in different ways. A natural way that people have talked about that is well, that there are two powers, then we will need more weapons, more conventional weapons, more nuclear weapons. As twice as many or three times or however many more adversaries there and I think that's that that that's one possibility there you may want to worry about if uh we're in a conflict with someone that the other another conflict is going to want to get involved in it or even for other countries they may worry about it too India may have to be concerned that if it gets in a conflict with Russia or with China excuse me with China that Pakistan may want to get a piece of it thinking that India is weak But that's not the only way to think about it. We need to be really careful with this of using too much intuition because you could see it another way too. You could see that, well, maybe another country doesn't want to get involved in a war between the United States and and China because they don't want to suffer a nuclear hit. A nuclear hit is probably more damaging than any kind of benefit they're going to get from the conflict. Seems like it'd be much more interest to them just to let us play it out and fight it out and they can pick up the pieces on. And... So that, that, those dynamics, we don't really know which plays out which way. And that's the kind of thing that game theory is really useful for, understanding things that may be counterintuitive and prevents us from relying too much on our assumptions and biased thinking um, to develop conclusions. We can also think about this in terms of the effect of alliances on deterrence, because that's another, like a, a, a converse element of multipolarity. Alliances may help embrace deterrence. Each power that we're, we're allies with, they have their own stake in something. So they have a balance of interest that, that is at play there and bringing them together with us can add to the deterrent value because the adversary doesn't just have to worry about the balance of interest with us, they have to worry about the balance of interest with one of our allies. So that's a, that, that can be a powerful point. Then lastly, rapid technological innovation. We're seeing a variety of different technologies being developed today on between new ways of of conducting the ISR, autonomous systems, uh, machine man learning, um, of course, artificial intelligence. And does, we should ask, does this change the nature of deterrence? Is the second strike capability that has been said, that it's been underpinned, deterrence thinking for 60 years, does that still hold well in this new kind of technological environment? Are things more vulnerable than they used to be? Are first strikes more possible than they used to be? Or is it also possible for um, advanced systems to identify options and ways of waging war um, and assess risk effectively enough that war may be more likely than we realize it to be? So I'll stop there. I apologize for going far too long, um, but I really appreciate everyone's attention. Um, Thank you so much. I will go ahead and stop share right now.
0: All right. Thank you, Dr. Malkazian. So now we are going to move on to the Q&A portion of today's discussion. Um, And we will start with a question from Krista Langland. Um, And this question is, if balance of interest matters more than the the defense of the Baltics or Taiwan, how should the U.S. strategy reflect this to achieve deterrence? Using strategic messaging that increases our perceived stake there, or are there other tools as well that we could leverage?
1: Uh, So there's a variety of tools here on um, so messaging is one part of it um, but it'd be important that the messaging—the messaging the messaging can't just be talk it has to involve real costs that are sustained for us so it would be wrong to say that these areas can that attacks in these areas can be deterred without any military spending that is that is completely incorrect that would that would have the opposite signal so there does have to be spending and in, in capabilities to fight um russia and china on but the simple messaging without that won't be as effective uh the other thing to think about are tripwires what forces can be placed where that will automatically create risk if if China or Russia wants to undertake an action and the third thing I would point to that we are fortunately in a good position on are our alliances Um, those alliances help add to that, add to that deterrent value. Now, that's also, of course, going to be important that the allies agree with us on what we're doing and we are standing together and, and, and and working together. But having our, having forces aligned with our allies on our allies' soil, um, that helps bond that alliance together and make aggression on the part of the adversary more difficult. All
0: right, thank you. Um, Our next question um, comes from Ramesh Balakrishnan, um, and this question relates to um, some of your forthcoming work um, on the U.S. facing two great powers, China and Russia. Uh, So the question is, is a tailored approach to deterrence necessary in the two theaters in Europe and the Indo-Pacific? And you can, um, if you haven't fully dove into this research yet, um, you can defer to to a, a later brief that might be on this topic.
1: Um, so, a tailored approach to deterrence. The answer is yes and no. Um, so, there are general elements of deterrence that should be fungible across different adversaries. Especially when we're talking about um, well, cyber and nuclear and, and nuclear deterrence. They both help in this respect. Um, that if you have um, second strike capabilities with additional options t- attached to it um, then that deterrent is going to be effective against a variety of powers especially when the, you have a triad like like we have on um, that enables a lot of flexibility and in, in that deterrent for it to be to be fairly effective but there are elements other elements of tailoring that are going to be required and i think this especially gets into place when we talk about beneath the nuclear level on um, what you (sighs) have, deterrence varies on the basis of which domain you're looking at. The rules of nuclear deterrence don't apply the same way to cyber deterrence. Cyber deterrence has what we call an attribution problem, which means you don't know who actually struck on. And so that adds a level of complexity about how you're going to deter and that puts a greater emphasis upon being um, being able to attribute effectively. Um, So when you're deterring cyber, you need a different set of capabilities that nuclear can't quite parse on to. The other element of of cyber that's important here is that it can be what's called in game theory a bit of a tit-for-tat game, which means that what happens at cyber is often at a low enough level that someone's willing to do it because they're willing to face the repercussions of retaliation. So the question then becomes, if one takes a cyber attack, do you retaliate or do you not retaliate? If you don't retaliate, the problem being that, well, you haven't punished the adversary, so the adversary thinks it's okay to do it again. There's some questions about attribution in that, but that that is fundamentally different from nuclear deterrence, because nuclear deterrence generally doesn't have this tit-for-tat aspect happening within it. Now, if nuclear weapons were to be used, it it would have that, but even so, cyber, it's much more fundamental. It's a much more fundamental back and forth of, of attacking each other than nuclear deterrence is so when you're dealing with a cyber world you have to be more refined you can't rely on just one thing you will need some amount of refinement about who your adversary is although less there than we're dealing like in the um, conventional aspect of competition beneath armed conflict at those levels you will need certain systems that are useful for that environment on especially when you're dealing with competition short armed conflict you probably need more special operations forces um to deal with that kind of problem and information uh, elements information operations and there's the whole of what State Department does and other agencies do um, so the more you're facing of that the more you'll have to vary things and even competition beneath our when we're talking about Russia versus China those are two different things China uses different means that tend to be more economic than what Russia does so the kind of forces you use against China are probably going to have a little bit less of a kinetic less of a military aspect than what you would have when you're confronting Russia. So I'm not sure, I didn't give you a straight answer, but hopefully that helps elucidate how there's these different aspects to it so that you can generally deter at some big levels and things can be useful across. But on the other hand, to deal with multi-domains, you're, you're going to have to have some refinement. All right,
0: thank you, Dr. Malkasian. Uh, we have a question now from John Solomon, and this question is, the Soviet general staff place great weight on their calculations of both theater and strategic correlations of forces when contemplating risks and opportunities for potential actions. Do you think that the Russians and Chinese use analogous concepts today to inform their decision-making? And If they do, how should that inform our approaches to deterrence?
1: So, I uh, some people say Uh, you hear hear some amount of information, of course, we're talking about in the media, um, that the Russians and the Chinese care a lot about the correlation of forces, and they're carefully calculating that. Uh, And I put some amount of stock into that because um, I don't think that China's testing of a hypersonic weapon or their building of silos in, in in the deserts of China I don't really believe that to be um random or a part of them building a minimum deterrent i think they they realize that the u.s uh, nuclear capabilities are far superior to theirs and they are trying to provide themselves with options um, to deal with that because they don't want to be coerced by us so in that sense i put i, I put some some stock into it on um, And how should that relate? How should that apply to us? Well, we probably want to be also doing intense analysis to understand um, what vulnerabilities or strengths might be on our part and the adversary's part. And we wanna make sure that we have the the capability sets. Uh, We don't want the adversary, we don't want Russia or China thinking they have an easy way to coerce the United States. We don't want them thinking that there's some use of nuclear weapons that they could conduct on um, that we would have difficulty responding to um, now i don't really think that there is such a thing um, but to make sure that's not there that requires analysis and paying attention to um, to, to what's occurring what the other side is is is, is building on um, and certainly the fact that, if they are examining the correlation of forces and and what the weapons and what they what they what they do not do, it does mean they are paying a lot of attention to deterrence. It does mean they're paying attention to these systems and there 's good and bad in that. The bad is kind of the stuff I mentioned before about are they trying to find vulnerabilities and ways to to harm us? The good is well they actually care about deterrence they don 't want the, the world to blow up a nuclear war on. Um, That nuclear weapons are playing a role in preventing both sides from doing what uh, from conducting aggression and and both sides experiencing more violence um and that should be a source of confidence for us all
0: right thank you dr Balkasian um an anonymous person asked how the u.s can deter an adversary if that adversary doesn't perceive the u.s as having vital interests at stake for example if the stated u.s interests are not plausibly vital
1: um so how the United States can deter that adversary if they think that we don't have vital interests. Um, so that some of the things I mentioned before about tripwires, uh, about our forces being in, in places of, of danger, about making sure that the adversary, if it's going to attack, that it has to, um, it, it has to attack broadly. It has to attack in a way that's going to create more escalation. Um, that that is a way to to, to to handle this but also as I pointed out earlier that there if we don't care about something a lot doing something that creates a lot of risk you know that has its dangers in it you know very discrete very explicit dangers in it so an alternative is if we don't care about the place then don't stake our reputation on fighting for it Don't put it into an alliance find a diplomatic way to hand that over. Now you're going to have to send a variety of costly signals while doing that so that the adversary doesn't think that by turning it over that they are now able to take more ground. Um, So any such decision to give something over has to be very closely coordinated with allies um, and probably is going to require, it, it, it probably require having more expenses in forward locations so that the signal is sent clearly to the adversary that by giving up this one area, it doesn't mean you're giving anything else up. Um, So there's a lot of complexity in in doing that. But again, if the risk of holding it is is considered way too high and way too great, then it may not be a good idea to use Kim Jong-un style methods um, to try to get the the adversary to back away.
0: All right, thanks so much. Um, Our next question comes from Todd Beasy. And the question is, as we consider what has changed since the Cold War deterrence paradigm, and the strategic environment, one might point to the interdependencies that arose from the post-Cold War wave of globalization, which bolsters the case for integrated deterrence beyond nukes. The second large factor seems to be the transition to the digital or information age, which has contributed to a systemic diffusion of power, corresponding dissolution of control, and exponential rise in interactive complexity. How do you feel that the contemporary information environment has changed the way that we think about deterrence? understanding that communication of interests, commitments, and resolve are so vital to escalation management.
1: Um it's a good question. In some ways I feel like I haven't done enough research on it. I so I do think that there is a there is still a divide about how much the integrated economy affects deterrence. Um, and I don't think we've come to, to there there hasn't been a point at which we've settled on how much this matters in, in deterring conflict. Most of the things that I just went through and the ideas I just went through, they don't really take an, a degree of economic integration um, between the two adversaries as a possible cost to going to war or a possible deterrent to doing it. And that also leads to a lot of the thinking today, not, not considering that. On the military side, there, I think the tendency is also not to consider that. In the past, like um, you know, five years ago or so, there was a greater argument, there's still a little argument now, but a greater argument that cooperation with the United States and China, the degree of economic integration was going to deter any kind of attack and was gonna make violence just not profitable to either side. Now, people with historical knowledge will tend to say, well, that's the same thing they said before World War I, when the world economy was about as integrated as it is today. And nevertheless, people were willing to go forward um, there's a political there's various political science arguments debating well how much does global integration institutionalization really deter conflict or when it comes down to it or states just simply willing to fight when they're willing to fight and willing to take those economic losses um, so there's a lot of debate there now what I would point to is there is actually some formal work some of it by Robert Powell that gets a little more in detail about when there is economic connect when there is economic losses to go into conflict when there's free trade at hand does that prevent conflict or does it not prevent conflict and as you would expect it's actually fairly variable depends on on what if what one gains from that from for the gain from trade um, that one is getting is that more worth more or less than the gain from territorial acquisition or whatever else you're taking and then which of these could then be translated into more aggressive activity on so I think it's probably a little bit more variable that does require more analysis and so it's a it's a it's a good question in in, in that respect on you mentioned how the in, how information has changed as well and how information is flowing to a greater extent and I guess on that point there may be work that's done on that and how that plays into deterrence but I guess I have to confess I haven't examined it enough Um, I mean, so we've seen a lot with the United States, what the Russians did in the United States and, and how there's, you know, a war of information going on, but that's another realm that deserves more work and more analysis to understand how deterrence is working or not.
0: There we go. Thank you. Dr. Malkazian. Um, so it looks like we have time for probably one more question. Um, and I will pose a question that just came in from Arzan Tarapor. Um, and this question is, Cold War deterrence theory was based on binding alliances like NATO. How should we adapt it for contemporary multilateral structures like the Quad um, or the US, Australia, Japan, and India? Um, can they, uh, can they uh, cause effective deterrence?
1: Um, so the, they should. Add to deterrence for some of the reasons that 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 I mentioned earlier. It's not clear to me, you know, the fact that there are multiple alliances—NATO, um, AUKUS, the Quad—are um, hub-and-spoke system of alliances in, in in East Asia and Southeast Asia. I'm not sure how much that really changes. Um, well, work work does need to be done to show how varying levels of alliances shift the effectiveness of deterrence. A work needs to be done to, to look at how different levels of interests on um, between different allies against an adversary how that changes um behavior between between the two and how that what level of deterrence could be required to make something happen now in general though for the, the reason that i stated earlier alliances should help reinforce deterrence because the forward country have greater stake in what's happening usually than the united states does on um, And that stake makes it more risky for that adversary to to assault um, those countries. When the United States has an alliance like that, too, and is invested in it, has costs in it, um, has has been ratified by the Senate, then there's also much greater damage to a U.S. leader to fall back from that alliance. Um, So alliances have these very positive characteristics to assist with deterrence.
0: All right. Thank you, Dr. Mocasian. Um With our last minute, is there anything that you'd like to, to leave our audience on today?
1: I think I'd just like to thank everyone for coming today in in the, in, in the middle of the week. I know everyone is busy and ha- have has a lot of things to do. Uh, and and, and I'm, I'm happy everyone had had an interest in this. And I guess I, I hope that, I hope the conversation, I you know, hope, A, sparked thinking about different ways that we can enact a, a defense strategy that don't rely so much on, on, a, on a conventional battle somewhere. And the other thing I hope it sparks is interest, especially in academia and the Defense Department, about further work to explore these dynamics and the things we don't understand, multipolarity, effects of technology, effects of alliances on cyber deterrence, uh, deterrence across the information space. These are all things that need some serious rigorous analysis um, and that hopefully um, in the future gets done.
0: All right. Thank you, Dr. Malkazian. Um, And for anyone whose questions did not get addressed today, feel free to shoot me those via email and I'll pass them along to today's speaker. Um, So have a great day, everyone. And thank you again, Dr. Malkazian. Thank you. All right. Goodbye, everyone.